you know, I, I think anybody who looks at the Gaza Strip and, and Israel at this moment has is, is got to be uh, really in a, in a very solemn mood, I think. Um, you know, at this point, uh, it looks, uh, you know, Israel continues its campaign to rid Hamas of uh, Gaza by essentially uh, both bombing Gaza um, and then a ground invasion, slowly, gradually invading um, parts of uh, particularly the more dense areas of Gaza, like Gaza City, uh, looking for, uh, obviously, uh, Hamas fighters, but also, more importantly, the web of tunnels that store munitions and resources that Hamas has been using to bombard and attack Israel. Um, you know, when, the, uh, when this war began on October 7th, Hamas you know, lodged 5,000 uh, missiles into Israel in addition to the storing, uh, in addition to the attacks uh, that killed 1,400 Israelis, including 1,000 civilians. And I think, you know, looking forward, um, you know, it continues to be sort of a grim uh, picture for, for the most part. There's not really any clear evidence of uh, a stoppage. Uh, Israel uh, and uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu have talked about small humanitarian uh, stoppages, but there's certainly a feeling on the Israeli side that if any kind of ceasefire were to occur, uh, it would give Hamas the opportunity to regroup. And I think at this point, Israel uh, doesn't feel like that's in their interest. Dr. Mark Cassell with us from Kent State University. The hostages seem to be the big cure, and Hamas has shown no willingness really to, to let them go. Israel keeps pointing at that. If that would happen to be settled, Mark, would Israel be more inclined to pull back? I guess educate us a little bit on where these two sides are right now. I mean, I certainly think that freeing the hostages would certainly go a long way to changing the situation. I think the fact that Hamas has over 200 hostages uh, um, and has used them uh, to as both as shields but also as leverage uh, to uh, essentially keep Israel on its toes, I think, um, has worsened the situation. I mean, I think that for Americans and certainly for those outside of Israel, I think it's important to at least appreciate that for for Israelis, it's it's really a sense of extraordinary vulnerability. I think that what the war, uh, what the attacks of Hamas uh, demonstrated, was the sudden feeling um, that Israelis have experienced throughout that time since 1948. Uh, you know that they are extremely vulnerable. That they it's not just sort of about numbers and about you know how many. Uh, were killed from one side versus the other. I think it's a sense of just a lack of vulnerability, which Americans really, you know, it's hard to sort of appreciate that, you know, we, we don't have that. We don't have that feeling ever that the United States might go away uh, in a short period of time. Whereas in Israel, that's a very, very real sense. They're surrounded by Arab countries, many of whom would like to see Israel wiped from the face of this earth and have not been shy about, it, about saying that. And you've got a, uh, you know, you've got Gaza, which is a very short distance from Israel, uh, lobbing, lo- you know, uh, missiles into Israel, and then of course the the killing spree that occurred on October seventh. And I just think, for Americans, it's important to sort of appreciate just the sense of vulnerability, the sense that Israel and Israelis feel uh, that their country, you know, is really could at any time. Uh, go away, uh, or at least be, uh, you know, transformed dramatically. Um, and I think that 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 sense of vulnerability and lack of security, I think, uh, dominates so much of the discussion within Israel. 
and affects really the, the policies that Israel has going forward toward Gaza. So when Americans say, we don't understand why it is that Israel, Israel is sort of continuing to bomb, I think it's just a sense of, I mean, if you imagine, if, imagine, you know, if, if Mexico on, the, on our border, you know, were, we were taking out, you know, large sections of our population on the, on the border, the Americans, uh, and threatened the existence of the United States, I think that Americans would appreciate uh, the the situation that Israel is in uh, currently, and at least the, even if they don't agree with what Israel is doing, at least have some empathy for for uh, sort of how Israelis are sort of seeing the situation. With us is Dr. Mark Cassell, professor of political science at at Kent State University. Mark, I was doing some reading over the weekend about the other Arab nations and how they're looking at the situation. Egypt, for one, wanting to get some sort of ceasefire, but also looking at the United States and their role in this whole thing. And then, of course, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, what are the chances of this thing escalating beyond control? So go down that avenue for me, if you don't mind. Sure. I think that's a great question, Ray. I think that um, the outer, the, the Arab states um, are crucial to any sort of ceasefire and any sort of peace in, in the area. I think um you know, and I think that's recognized by uh, uh, by Secretary of State Antony Blinken, um, but also European allies recognize this. You can't imagine uh, its peace both in Gaza or, frankly, in the West Bank without some participation of Arab countries, whether that be Qatar or Jordan or certainly Egypt. Um, you know, and so you know, I think there's people are talking about it, and certainly prior to October seventh, you know, there we've talked about this on your program. There were moves to uh, normalize relations between, for example, Saudi Arabia and, and, uh, and Israel. As many many believe that uh, part of that normalization is what prompted Hamas to launch its attack into Israel. Though I think there are probably other factors as well. But um, you know, going forward or thinking about you know how this war plays out, I think you have to. It doesn't work unless you have uh, the participation of, of other Arab countries in the peacekeeping. Because otherwise, Palestinians will never go along. Right? They're not going to. Uh, they're not going to accept a simple uh, um, force of uh, of Israelis uh, reoccupying Gaza. That's hard to imagine. And so, you know, there, there's a possibility that you know some sort of Arab peacekeeping force uh, could play a role both in the West Bank, but also certainly in Gaza. Um, you know, both militarily, but also financially, right? To to sort of think about. What a what a governing structure uh, in those areas might might look like, and who would participate. But you know, as, as somebody said, you know, it's like trying to clean up after a Category Five hurricane while the hurricane is still happening. So, I mean, there's just lots of brainstorming going on. Um, I do think, you know, for the for many, and again, it's important to recognize that for many Arab countries, you know, m- many of them don't want Israel to exist in the first place. Iran, for example, is happy if. Uh, Hezbollah, which is the militia in southern Lebanon, continues its effort at bombarding uh, Israel in the north because, you know, neither Iran nor Hezbollah want Israel to exist at all, and they've made that very clear. Um, And at the same time, you do have countries like Jordan and Egypt who would like to see a two-state solution, um, and, you know, they they are looking at ways of participating that would preserve that option, but it's still, you know, what that looks like given that uh, Israel is continuing uh, its, uh, um, you know, its its occupation and its invasion of, of Gaza is hard to imagine. 
With us is Dr. Mark Cassell, professor of political science at Kent State University. Mark, tying all that together, you have this coming Friday with the possibility of a government shutdown where many people do not want further help, whether it be the war in the Gaza Strip or, of course, the Ukraine war, which is still hanging out there. So that puts the United States again in another precarious situation going forward. Absolutely. I think that's a big part of, uh, you know, I think a big part of the calculations in in the Middle East is, you know, what happens to the uh, Ukraine and uh, and certainly countries like China and uh, Russia are certainly looking at the situation, uh, I think, in, in, a, in, in a very positive light. I think for them, uh, the war in the Middle East has been um, a benefit. Uh, that is, uh, it's an opportunity for both Russia and China to kind of distract the West uh, from kind of adversarial relations uh, with them. Uh, in the Russia's case, I think the Gaza Strip has been kind of welcome because it's shifted, obviously, attention away from from the Ukraine. And for China, the the war, sort of coupled with the Ukrainian crisis, has, has kind of prevented the United States from from focusing on Indo-Pacific regions, um, providing China with a lot more room to maneuver. And you know, there's a meeting in San Francisco, the APEC uh, meeting, which is a a group of 21 uh, economies that uh, will be meeting in San Francisco, uh, 21 Asian Pacific economies, including uh, the president of China and, uh, and uh, President uh, Biden will both be there. And I think that's an effort uh, to try to reduce tensions, try to restart relations with, uh, particularly around issues around climate change, which, and uh, because, you know, we, we know that both U.S. and China are the two largest greenhouse gas emitters. And so, you know, try to restart that um, and reduce tension and increase um, some level of trust, given the conflicts around the world, I think is, is on the agenda. But there's no there's no question that this war, you know, has transformed other wars and other relations. It means, you know, we know this uh, international relations is linked. One conflict affects another. So uh, we'll have to just sort of see how things play out. Yeah, I saw that. That's on the horizon. That to me is even big. And Mark, I was reading into more of that meeting that I guess they're even talking about during that get-together with the presidents, when you're talking about China and the United States, maybe even talking some military issues, which would be rather interesting. That's right. I mean, I think, you know, for the Biden administration uh, and Janet Yellen, uh, the uh, you know, Secretary of Treasury, I I think that... um, you know, there's a real interest in trying to reduce tensions uh, with China. I think they would, they see trying to increase. Uh, I mean, they're not capitulating to China. I think they recognize China's uh, goals are not necessarily in line with the United States' goals. But you know, there's no China is the second. We've talked about this on several times. Uh, China, you know, is a is, is the second if, if, uh, largest economy in the world. They control tremendous numbers of resources. They have huge influences in the world. And the question is sort of how do we deal with this? And I think that, um, you know, the, the APEC meeting is, is sort of one, uh, it's an important opportunity for two leaders to sort of meet face-to-face. And I think that when you see a person across the table, I think you can, uh, you know, it's just a very different uh, uh, scenario than if you're just relying on hearsay and, and what it is that you think people have said and so forth. So it's a chance to be honest and have some uh, honest, uh, discussions about real topics, real problems that really the world feels. No, even China nor Russia, although they, they benefit in the short term, I think in the long term, the, the conflict in the Middle East and the conflict, frankly, in Ukraine 
are not good for those countries. And I think they recognize this, and it's a chance to sort of try to come up with a solution.